I just told him everything that I was feeling and was really honest and just tried to kind of process all of those fears that I was dealing with. And they just said like, you know, from what I'm hearing from you, like you love snowboarding. Like I know you love snowboarding right now. It's just buried kind of in that fear of being injured. And you know, it's a very real fear in our sport. That's professional snowboarder Arielle Gold. Nice last name to have, right? So we got to sit down and have this conversation right before she was announced to her second Olympic halfpipe team. The catch is she never officially competed in her first Olympics in the 2014 games in Sochi. Hi everyone, I'm Olympic snowboarder Gretchen Blyler. Welcome to the Art of Living Extraordinarily, where I dive deep into the stories of those who have had the courage to blaze their own trails. We learn the deeper motives that drive these individuals, how they face fears, the challenges and obstacles they've faced, how they get through them, and the biggest lessons that they've learned along the way to living their dreams. In practice, just before qualifiers, Ariel had a violent fall where she dislocated her shoulder. After an hour or so of the worst pain of her life, doctors finally gave her anesthesia to put her shoulder back into place. Meanwhile, the show went on without her. In this episode, we dig into an experience that many of us have or will face at some point in our lives. How fear has the ability to bury our passions without us even knowing it. And we get to a point where we start to question if we should still be going after our dreams. The good news is Ariel has reconnected with her fire and reclaimed positive momentum in a major way. And now we get to learn the tools and techniques she used to come out on the other side. But before we get started, I wanna give a shout out to our sponsor, Alex Supply Co. Alex Supply Co. is a company I started with my husband a few years ago. And the main reason we started it is because using healthy and sustainable products is definitely one of those small everyday actions that add up to an extraordinary life. It's the reason you'll always see me walking around with my reusable water bottle. But the problem is that every reusable bottle out there is impossible to clean. Eventually they fill up with bacteria, they start to stink, it's gross. So with Alex, we fixed that by creating the first stainless steel bottle that opens in the middle so you can actually clean it out. I mean, it makes total sense, right? A bottle you can actually clean? It's perfect for water and it's actually also incredible for smoothies and other drinks that you can't clean out of other bottles. And because it opens in the middle, it saved me on so many camping trips by becoming two cups to share with a friend or even an impromptu cocktail shaker. The list goes on and on. The name stands for Always Live Extraordinarily and inspiration and hydration partner while you're pursuing your dreams. We've just released a couple other handy products too, so right now you can get 20% off with code Gretchen, G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N. Head over to alexbottle.com, A-L-E-X-B-O-T-T-L-E.com and use code Gretchen for 20% off. Now on to the art of living extraordinarily, defined by Arielle Gold. Okay, Arielle, we are live. Happy to be I'm here. I'm sitting with the one and only Arielle Gold. Um, Arielle, just take us through how you grew up, um, where you grew up, family dynamic, kind of how you got into snowboarding in the first place. So I grew up in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And I actually started snowboarding uh, because my older brother, Taylor, started before me. And I pretty much liked to do everything that he did. Wanted to try it. Wanted to be better than him at it, if I could be. Um, So he started snowboarding when he was seven years old. And a couple years later, he was still doing it. So when I turned seven, I decided to switch over from skiing to snowboarding and give it a try. And uh, never looked back. And so Steamboat, that's a pretty like Olympic heavy village, right? Or town. Um, I know there's a lot of Olympic training stuff going on there. Did you grow up wanting to be an Olympian or thinking that you ever could be? When I was younger, I didn't really think much about it. Um, My parents put me on skis when I turned three years old. So started skiing at a pretty young age. It's definitely kind of part of the culture of Steamboat is to Uh, start skiing or snowboarding while you're young Um, and even once I started snowboarding it was just kind of another thing to do outside didn't really think of it as anything more than that 
um, probably until I turned at least 14 or 15, um, was kind of right around the time that I realized that maybe I could be an Olympian. So how did you get there? Like, how did you go from following your brother around and wanting to kind of beat him to that place where you were 14 or 15 and feeling like, oh, maybe I can become an Olympian? Like, were you on the steamboat team or take us through that? Yeah, so when I first started snowboarding, I just kind of took lessons on the main mountain, uh, what most people would normally do, even if they came into town for a few days, just to try and learn to ski or snowboard. Um, and then after I started to kind of get better and could ride down the mountain by myself, that's when I ended up joining uh, the Steamboat Winter Sports Club. And that's kind of, those guys were really what helped me kind of get into competing and kind of work my way up the ladder, just starting out at local USASA events and Steamboat and then kind of starting to do weekend trips to Copper and to Breckenridge. And from there, it just kind of escalated to where I am now. But no, you can't just say that because, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't escalate to that. Like, so you said 14 or 15, that's maybe when you started thinking, I, I might be able to do this. Like, I might be able to become a pro snowboarder or maybe become an Olympian. Um, did you, like, is that something you kind of set like an intention like this is what I want I honestly did not set that intention at all I would say I mean you could ask my brother Taylor when I first started snowboarding until yeah until that age I was basically just like oh I'm snowboarding for fun it's something fun to do like it's something I was good at you know when I first learned I was pretty bad but just the more that I did it I mean Steamboat sets up their whole winter sports club so that you can basically ski or snowboard every day after school at House and Hill. Um, they have lights set up up there. Um, and then even once I got into middle school and high school, I was able to go up for half days on the main mountain. So I was just spending tons of time snowboarding and it just kind of happened where I just was spending so much time and progressing really quickly and uh, competed in a bunch of USASA Nationals events. And I think um, my showings at those events were kind of help, what helped me get into Grand Prix events. And uh, yeah, just from there, getting to ride with a lot of the older girls like you and, you know, seeing the level of riding that everybody was at is really what motivated me to kind of learn those tricks to start to be competitive. Besides Taylor uh, in Steamboat, did you have any other friends who you, who you rode with who pushed you or was it mainly Taylor? Taylor was the main one, but actually uh, Maddie Shafrick, who used to be on the U.S. snowboard team with us, um, was definitely one of my biggest inspirations growing up. Uh, there weren't many girls who competed or snowboarded, uh, especially from Steamboat. It was really um, Maddie and I were kind of the only two girls, so we connected pretty quickly and would snowboard together every day. And I think she's kind of a big reason why I started competing and got really into it because she was super talented and just watching her progress, I think, was a really good motivator for me. Mm -hmm. How was it kind of growing up being one of only a couple girls snowboarding? It was challenging, I would say. I mean, I, I think having Maddie around, like I said, was huge just for me to yeah have another girl to ride with because I do think sometimes there is a bit of a disconnect between men's and women's snowboarding but Taylor's always been really great about including me in all of his little adventures with his friends whether it's snowboarding or whatever so um, I think that's a big part of why I've also progressed a lot is kind of getting beat up by the boys and like you know pushed by them that definitely helped me a lot too. When you saw them doing certain tricks did you feel like that's something within your capacity too or was it more like oh that's what the guys are doing and I'm working on something else I think that's what's challenging about riding with the guys is that it is kind of easy to be like oh those are, those are the guys that are doing that but the girls don't do that yet so that's just kind of part of our culture that I think a lot of girls are kind of trying to battle at this point in snowboarding and um, yeah especially growing up and being kind of one of the younger girls to start snowboarding um, I think just having at least Maddie to ride with kind of helped bridge that gap because she was better than a lot of guys her age. So that definitely kind of inspired me to be like, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what was it like for you to kind of make that transition from living in Steamboat, riding with your brother to joining the U.S. snowboard team? 
I would say it happened gradually. Um, for From the start, I was just traveling in and out of Steamboat as far as competing in USASAs. It was just weekend trips down to Copper. Um, and then as I kind of started getting better, we actually ended up moving from Steamboat to uh, Frisco and having a house there for a few years throughout the winter. Um, and that's kind of what helped me get more into half pipe snowboarding was being able to ride the 22 foot half pipes because at the time Steamboat only had an 18 foot half pipe. Um, and then from there, my older brother Taylor and I ended up getting um, a condo in Breckenridge. And so now we've been training and competing out of there for the past several years. But I would say the biggest part of kind of transitioning from just doing USASAs and lower level events to competing with a lot of the pros was when I first got on the U.S. rookie team for uh, half pipe snowboarding. That was kind of kind of bridged the gap for me and gave me a chance to ride with some of the older girls that I looked up to and compete in some of those bigger events and that's really what inspired me to push myself and learn some of those higher level tricks that made me competitive was being able to ride with girls like that. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about your family and how supportive they, they've been of your career, how, they've, how instrumental they've been in helping you kind of get to where you are. Yeah, my family has always been amazing. I mean, like I said, Taylor's the reason I first started snowboarding. Um, and then beyond that, my parents have obviously always just wanted me to be happy in whatever I've been doing. I mean, I grew up riding horses and they were always supportive of that. And then, you know, when snowboarding became something more uh, important in my life, they were fully supportive of that. They just want me to be happy and to succeed in whatever I'm doing. So, you know, whether it was my parents moving to Frisco for the winter just to spend time with us and make sure that we could train down here. Um, driving us to all of the halfpipe competitions or flying to them to support us. They've just always been there. What have, wasn't your dad at one point kind of coaching you guys too? Yeah, my dad, my dad never coached me too much. Okay. Um, he actually coached Taylor a little bit more than me, but we always tell this story about uh, how Taylor and my dad were actually up training in the steamboat halfpipe, and it was kind of low-light day, so my dad went and bought some Gatorades, and was dumping the Gatorades on the lip of the half pipe so that Taylor could see and trying to coach him and help him learn new tricks. And at this point, he knows not to try and coach us on much stuff, but uh, it's always been great to have his support. Yeah. You mentioned um, horses, growing up riding horses. I know that's been a big part of your life. Um, how has that sort of helped you keep things in perspective as you've gotten more and more serious with snowboarding and training and going to the Olympics and having sponsors? How important is it to have sort of something you love outside of snowboarding? Well, it's funny because growing up, I think most people who grew up with me would have said that there was no way I was going to be a pro snowboarder just seeing how much I loved riding horses. They always thought I was going to, you know, pursue something with equestrians or go to vet school or do something along those lines, um, which is something I still intend to do. But uh, as of right now, it's just been a great compliment to snowboarding. I don't really think my parents quite knew what they were getting into when they put me on a horse when I was two. Um, when yeah. you were two? When I was two years old when what? they first put me on. Yep. What? How, what, how do you even like sit up straight <laughs> when you're two, let alone ride a horse? Exactly. I, I had uh, my instructor just held me up there and kind of led me around. And obviously at that age, I was just like, oh, this is cool. But they kept taking me. And yeah, they definitely, they learned their lesson when at like probably four years old, I was like, I want my own horse. And they're, they're like, like oh, uh -oh. No, this isn't going to be an expensive <laughs> hobby. Yeah, we're in for it now. But where did that even come from? I mean, not too many people get to ride horses when they're two. Did you live around horses in Steamboat or? Yeah, so my house when we were that age was kind of out in the countryside. Um, there, there was actually a woman who, uh, who we rented the property from and there was a barn on the property and she kept one of her horses there. So I would always wander out there and be kind of like playing with the horses and petting them and trying not to get stepped on. Um, and she actually is what really helped me kind of start riding horse in the first place because she came up to my parents one day when I was out at the barn and was like, hey, do you want to put Ariel on a horse? And you know, it all escalated from there. So have you competed in equestrian? Like what's, take us through 
like really your like what horseback riding looks like for you? Yeah, so when I when I first started riding, I didn't compete in anything and then I ended up going to a horse camp actually that was like an hour outside of Steamboat and uh, the woman who was running the horse camp said, "Oh, do you guys want to do you guys want to compete in this barrel race that was happening in Steamboat?" And of course, I was all over that. So she trailered her horse in because this was before I owned my own horse, and she let me ride her horse in this barrel race that happened every Thursday night in Steamboat. What's a barrel race? So it's basically running around these big uh, metal hollow barrels. You run your horse in a pattern. It's a cloverleaf pattern. And they time you, and whoever runs it the fastest wins. Okay, so how did you do? My first time, I think I did terrible. I mean, they I think I was probably seven or eight years old and just just learned the pattern like the night before. Um, but that was what was so great about it is it's such a such a mellow competition. Like they like there are kids there who are three years old and their parents are leading them through the pattern. Wow. And then there are women who are in their mid sixties running the pattern. So it's really family friendly anybody can do it so did you get nervous competing I don't think I got that nervous that time but I definitely think I started going a lot more after that and the more that I did I'd say the more nervous I got just because I started to kind of think more about it and that competitive spirit kind of kicked in and I was like I want to win this so that definitely I think brought the nerves up a little bit so do you think were you born with that competitive spirit like always wanting to do your best and kind of, I mean, have you always had that in you? Definitely. I mean, I was, I was that kid in gym class that would get pissed when my team lost at dodgeball. (laughs) So that's not, that's not necessarily the role that you would like to play at that age, but it's the whole reason I'm at where I'm at today in snowboarding. Cool. So let's talk about the last Olympic qualifiers. Um, you made the team. What was, what was that process like for you? Like go, not, not we're going to get to the Olympics, but like, you know, going through that process and making the U.S. Olympic team in 2014. So the qualification process, uh, for the last Olympics, that was the first, um, Olympics of my career that I was trying to qualify for. Um, so I really didn't have many expectations, which I think actually helped me a lot in that case because, there was just no stress for me to make the team aside from my own desire. So um, throughout that whole process, I mean, I was just kind of trying to focus on taking it contest by contest. It it wasn't really a huge weight on my shoulders that I had to make the Olympic team because I was 17 at that time. And I knew that, you know, if I didn't get the opportunity then, then hopefully I'd get the opportunity at some point in my career. Um, and how long had you been on the, the U.S. team before that season? At that point, I had been on the U.S. team for three years, okay. and it was my first year, I believe, on the pro team. Okay. Got it. So you were kind of going into it like, I'm young, I've got time, it would be awesome if I could make it, but we're going to just see what happens. Yeah, basically I was just trying to focus on my riding, just trying to ride in a way that I would be happy with, and just hoping that the results would come from that. And when did you kind of start to realize that you were going to be on this team? I actually didn't realize I was going to be on the Olympic team, I think, until the uh, right before the last event in Mammoth, California. Uh, we had two qualification events in Mammoth, and we did the third event, and then we still had the fourth qualification event afterwards. And I was talking to the coaches in between events, and they basically said to me, like, I don't, I think at this point you're in. I don't think that anything can happen where you're going to lose that spot. Um, And for me, that was obviously really surreal, but I think that they were expecting a bit more of a reaction of, like, excitement or something, because I was just a little bit shell-shocked at the time. Um, But obviously, it was amazing to find that out and then just be able to kind of use the last event to just have fun and not worry about any of that. So what was it like for you going to those first Olympics? I mean, you go with the team, you're sort of like prepared on what it's going to be like. Did you like see the video of Obama telling you like how to represent your country? (laughs) Like what go through? I know that whole process. You're like you go shopping and take us through that. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a whirlwind. Uh, We actually had to leave for the Olympics straight after X Games. So there really 
wasn't much time to kind of process what had just happened. It just all happened so quickly. And X Games, how did those X Games go for you? Those X Games, I think I got fourth place. So okay. obviously I wasn't happy with that just because that's how competitive I am. But uh, I also was excited just to, you know, obviously leave for Sochi and just mm-hmm. knew that that was another opportunity. Okay, so you go straight to Sochi. And didn't you guys have to do your processing in a different country or something? Yeah, so we stopped in Germany and did our processing in Germany for one night and then flew to Russia the next day. So what was up with that? Um, so the processing, we just basically have to go in and that's where they have like all of the team equipment that you're going to need. So uh, it was basically in this giant warehouse and we just went in and they sized us for all of our outfits for... Um, our opening and closing ceremonies outfits and for um, all the other random swag that we get from Olympic sponsors like Ralph Lauren shirts and um, our Olympic rings. We had those sized there too. Um, that's kind of a cool thing that the U.S. team does where every athlete who goes to the Olympics gets an Olympic ring. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of their way of congratulating you even if things don't necessarily go the way that you hoped. Um so that was kind of a whirlwind process, just going through one day, get everything sized, and then head to Russia. And then and then keep going. Keep t- going. Okay. Take us through it. Um, and then after that, we were flying into Russia, uh, landed at the airport, and just kind of had to get everything organized. We ended up taking buses up to the Olympic Village because it was about a two-hour drive from the airport. Um, up this crazy road that wove into the mountains. So they had buses that they just loaded everybody on um, with police escorts taking us up there. Um, And then the U.S. team actually didn't stay in the Olympic Village, or at least the snowboard team didn't. They put us in a hotel that was uh, actually down kind of in the village below the mountain, whereas the Olympic Village was up on the mountain. Um, And I think that was mainly because there were some concerns about what uh, the status of the Olympic Village was going to be like. They were just finishing everything as we were getting there, so I think they just wanted to make sure that they could take care of as many athletes as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hotel that we stayed at, they brought in chefs who were cooking for us every night, and uh, the food was really good. Um, when we first got to the hotel, they were still sweeping up dust from having just finished built it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think that we had it better than most of the people in the Olympic Village. Yeah. So it was just you guys in that hotel, um, the U.S. snowboard team, or did you have other U.S. teams in there or other nations? It was the U.S. snowboard team. So the snowboard, actually just the snowboard halfpipe and the border cross okay. team, and then also the alpine ski team. So I don't know how they picked those athletes specifically to get to stay down there, but definitely glad we were you some You guys of were them. the lucky ones? Yeah. Um, and so how did, you know... How did practice go? Were you nervous? Like, give me the breakdown. I wouldn't say I was nervous. I think I think mainly the expectations that I had were more so for the venue than for mm-hmm. uh, the way that I would ride, I guess. Um, so the first day of practice, when we got up to the venue, the half pipe was in pretty bad shape already. Um, it kind of looked like they had scrambled to build it, and the temperatures were super warm. Uh, which definitely didn't help with the snow quality. So we right off the bat, we dropped in, and uh, I think for the first run it felt okay, but pretty quickly after two or three runs of everybody going through it, it started to get some pretty big holes, uh, in particular throughout the flat bottom, yeah. which just makes it really challenging to ride because you need to be able to carry speed through the flat bottom. So that made it a bit difficult. Um so that was kind of the first day of practice was we just got to take a few runs and then they ended up shutting the half pipe down because it started to get dangerous. Oh, so you only had a short amount of time and then it was over. Yeah, so we were supposed to have probably a two or three hour practice and it ended up being maybe 40 minutes because oh, wow. the pipe just completely fell apart on us. Okay. And then did you have practice the next day? Yeah, so then we had practice the next day and... I think we were supposed to have either two or three days of practice, and I think that the next day went pretty much the same as the first, where um, the shape might have improved a little bit, but it still kind of went the same way, where it felt okay first run and just got beat up really quickly, just the same warm, soft conditions. 
So you're basically just trying to get used to the half pipe, but it's falling apart on you. So you weren't really able to do any, were you doing tricks at that point? Were you trying to rally or? I don't think I did a single trick until the contest day. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which is really like, so not my style, but that was kind of the thing is that event after the first day of practice, it, it was just disheartening. You know, you get there and Obviously, the Olympics have a huge buildup, so to get there and have the conditions be like that, it was just like, okay, well, we're here now, so I guess just going to kind of do what we can, but it was honestly a safety risk for a lot of us, just, you know, trying to do tricks in those sort of conditions. I think everybody kind of had their fingers crossed that, oh, the next day will be better, and was just kind of waiting for things to improve. And, and they didn't. Nope, they never did. So you got two days of practice or three? I think it was two days. Two days. And then when did you compete and when were opening ceremonies? So we had our two days of practice and then the men competed um, right after those two days. And so we had that day off and I actually went up to watch the men's event. Um, and then the following day was when the women competed. And I believe opening ceremonies were actually before we even started uh, any of our practice days. I'm pretty sure we had our opening ceremonies and then started practice. So what was opening ceremonies like? Opening ceremonies was a really cool experience. I mean, at that point in time, I think I just, you know, that's the kind of thing where you just have to enjoy it. And I definitely didn't form any sort of expectations about that because it's different every time, but you could tell that they put a lot of work into that and it ended up being a really cool performance. And yeah, just the feeling of walking out of the tunnel with Team USA, that's kind of the stereotypical shot that they show uh, before every Olympics. And yeah, that's definitely one of the coolest feelings is walking out of that tunnel with all of your teammates. Yeah, I remember doing that and feeling like just as nervous, like walking out of the stadium with the whole Team USA as I did like when I was competing a week later, um, like you get that adrenaline and I think that's when things start to feel really real. Like, Oh, I'm at the Olympics. Is that kind of what happened for you? Definitely. I mean, I would say that's definitely the moment when you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm at the Olympics. Like this is happening because that's, like I said, that's what, that's what the media buildup is all about is the opening ceremonies. And I mean, the amount of work that they put into it, it just ends up being really incredible experience for everybody. And, you know, just feeling the energy of the crowd, the energy of all your teammates, it just, everybody can feel it. It's electric. So was that like an inspiring thing for you? Like, did you leave the opening ceremonies like, I'm going to go do this? Or, you know, did it have any effect on you? Your, the energy you felt towards how you were going to perform? I would definitely say it was inspiring. I think that that, like I said, that was when it really set in that I was at the Olympics and, you know, obviously going into what should be the biggest event of your life, I was just ready to do whatever I could to ride the best that I could because that's, you know, that's what I felt like would really define my Olympic experience was the way that I was able to ride, not so much the result. Yep. Um, So you got to watch the guys compete before you. What was that like? Did that get you inspired or was it like, oh, it's not as good as I want it to be? Or what were your thoughts? I'd say watching the men compete uh, made me a little bit nervous just because my my older brother, Taylor, actually went to the Olympics with me. He qualified also for snowboard halfpipe. And uh, I actually got to watch him compete and he ended up falling on both runs of qualification. So he didn't make the finals. Um, and that was obviously disappointing because I'm his biggest advocate. I want to see him succeed just as much as I want to succeed. Yeah. Um, so I think kind of from that moment on, if anything, it definitely made me want to ride that much better because I knew that uh, his experience didn't go how he was hoping and that he would kind of be hoping to see make me succeed. Did he give you any words of wisdom after his event? Like, I wish I had done this, so you got to go do it now or something like that. I'd say he was pretty frustrated at that point. Uh, we didn't talk a whole much that night because, <laughs> uh, yeah, he was definitely kind of trying to cool down a bit and I knew that he would want some space, but uh, the next day he was up there supporting me like he always is. How cool is that to go to the, your first Olympics and his first Olympics together? It was amazing. I mean, going into the qualification process, I think we were both just hoping that at least one of us would make it. 
Uh, so for us to both go together was amazing. I mean, we've never been competitive with each other uh, in terms of, you know, snowboard contests in particular. Um, but I think that just having only one of us go would have been a little bit disheartening for the other. So to be able to go and share that experience together was incredible. Cool. So day of competition. You haven't thrown a single trick yet, and it's time to compete at the Olympics and qualifiers. Yeah, that was uh, that was a little bit stressful, I'd say. I mean, I think, unfortunately, at that point, after having had two days of practice that were the way that they were, I actually, I really wasn't that nervous because at that point, I think I was kind of just disheartened by the way that uh, that whole experience had been thus far, just in terms of competing and practicing in those sort of conditions. Um, so it was definitely hard to kind of get nervous because I didn't know. I mean, it just didn't feel like the Olympics to me at that point. Mm -hmm. But how do you rally, you know, because it is the Olympics. It doesn't feel like it. You haven't had the proper practice. Um, but, but at the same time you're there and it really is the Olympics. So how do you kind of rally mentally? I mean, I just tried to kind of put on my music and I knew that once I got into the half pipe, that would definitely help me get a little more pumped up. Uh, just kind of going up to the venue, it was actually kind of nice to not be that nervous because normally you would think like first Olympics, you must be so incredibly nervous. And uh, yeah, it was pretty nice to go up there and not feel too uh, scared about anything that was going to happen. And once I took my first run in the half pipe, they actually had done some work on it, um, actually sprayed some chemicals on it to try and kind of preserve the snow. And it did feel better for my first run. So that kind of, I think, got me started a little bit like, okay, maybe I can do this. Like, this is starting to feel good. Start do some tricks and see how it goes. So how did it go? So on my second run of practice, right after I had just finished telling myself that things were going to be fine... Um, I dropped in and on my first hit, I tried to do a frontside 540, um, and just kind of landed it weird and lost all my speed and was just like, well, at least I did a trick and tried to pump my speed back up. Um, and then tried to do a frontside 720. And I remember thinking in the air, like, oh, this feels good. And like on the video, it looked pretty good for the first spin that I had really done since I got there. Um, and landed and was riding into the next wall, like fully prepared to do uh, probably a cab spin, cab 720 or something. Um, and before I knew it, I just hit some sort of bump as I was riding through the transition and kind of fell forward, um, like over the nose of my snowboard. And both my arms like flew up because of the momentum that I had as I was falling and fell forward and landed like on my stomach. And then the momentum that I was carrying pulled my feet up and over my head, what most snowboarders call a scorpion. And it was the most the violent scorpion of my life. Uh, and that actually ended up dislocating my shoulder. So that uh, right after it happened, I remember like kind of laying there and being doing like the little body check right after you fall where it's just kind of making sure everything's okay and Right off the bat, everything felt pretty okay. I think I kind of hit my head a little bit, but aside from that, things felt fine. Um, and then I remember sitting up and feeling like my arm was like not connected to my body oh, anymore. No. And just being like, oh gosh, I, and having no idea what was wrong because- Right, because you, had you ever done that before? No. No. So I had no idea what it would have felt like. It. I remember like sticking my arm under my jacket and like feeling my shoulder and being like, something is definitely wrong. Um, but the pain hadn't really set in yet. So I didn't really quite understand what was happening. And this was on your second round of practice? Yeah. So did it go back in on its own or did you have to have help putting it back in? No. So when I sat up, it was still out. Um, and I was sitting there kind of doing a check and the fall looked pretty violent. So right off the bat, like people were, people coming, were coming up and yeah, checking on me. Um, and they ended up bringing a sled up because they thought that I might need the sled. Um, and then the U.S. team doctor, Dr. Hackett, came down and was talking to me a little bit and ended up putting his arm like on my shoulder and seeing if he could feel anything. And he didn't, I don't think he even told me what it was. Oh, and yeah. 
Like, you didn't want to freak you out? No, I was like, it's fine, I can walk down, because it was pretty close to the bottom of the pipe, so I got up and started walking down, and uh, he kind of walked with me, and I remember like looking over and talking to him and being like, if there's any way that I can still compete, I definitely want to go back up there. Wow. Because I had heard, I mean, I'd heard stories of people breaking their wrists and them putting casts on and being like, get back out there, it's the Olympics, you are not missing this right, because right. of a broken wrist. right. So what happened? So we ended up walking to, they basically had an ambulance that was pulled up uh, waiting in case anything happened. So I went down to the ambulance with Dr. Hackett because they wouldn't let him pop it back in while we were just out on the hill. It's kind of weird in foreign countries sometimes with that sort of stuff. Um, And then we got in the ambulance and they drove us down to like a medical clinic that was kind of midway up the mountain um, went in there and I think, I think at that point that was kind of when I realized like, okay, I'm, I'm not competing. Cause this, that whole process took probably 45 minutes Yeah. all the while my shoulder is still sitting out like worst pain of my life. Oh no. Yeah. That, that was the worst part of it is, I mean, at that point I couldn't even be like disappointed about not competing because I was just in so, so much pain. pain. Yeah. Just couldn't even think about that at the time. Um, and then finally we got to the clinic and they brought me into a room and actually put me to sleep for when they put it back in, which was really nice because I think they knew how much pain I was in yeah. and that I did not want to be awake for that stuff. Right. Um, so then, while all of the, that was going on, the competition was basically happening. Yeah, I think practice was finishing up and they, yeah, they started the competition because uh, they actually did women's qualifiers, semifinals, and finals all in one day. So they started things pretty quickly right after I was done. And yeah, by the time I got back up there, they were just starting finals, I think. So you did go back up for finals? Yeah, so right after I woke up, they gave me a bunch of painkillers. And I remember kind of talking to my parents about what I wanted to do. And I knew that if I went home while all the girls were still competing, I would just be so bummed out like sitting in my sitting in my hotel room just like thinking about it yeah um so I end up yeah going back up to uh the bottom of the half pipe and watching the rest of the women's event up there with my parents and actually some of my former coaches were there and yeah it was a it was a good crew to watch with not necessarily I didn't want to be down there watching with them but but if you had to, it was a good career to do it with. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that must have been really hard for you, I mean, to say the least. Um, you worked so hard to make the, the U.S. team, which is no easy feat. And then you get hurt and you're getting your shoulder put back in as the competition's going on. And then you're watching finals. Um, what was kind of going through your head? I mean, I'd say, like, the the main thing is that I was happy that my shoulder was back in place mm-hmm. because that pain was something that I just didn't ever want to feel again. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, I mean, being back being back up there, watching a contest from the sidelines is really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it, even if, like, in past contests when I haven't made finals, just watching finals because I didn't make it is challenging because that's you know, that's just the competitive spirit we have is wanting to be in there competing with the other girls and kind of just wondering what would have been basically like watching all the runs go by and selfishly thinking like, oh, I could do better. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, it's hard not to think that way. And, you know, yeah, it's easy to feel confident about that sort of stuff when you're not actually there. But (laughs) (laughs) that's, that's basically what was running through my head is, I mean, and obviously it's a, it's a team thing. So wanting my teammates to do well too, since I couldn't be out there with them. Mm -hmm. So is there anything that you've learned through this process that has given you a different perspective on things? Like, are there any moments, um, that have kind of defined your mental perspective these days in competition? I'd say that actually that injury was a big defining moment because I think from that point on I didn't really realize it but I think that day a lot changed in my mental state and my attitude towards snowboarding just subconsciously being a lot more fearful when I was riding um, for a little while after that and 
not really sure if I was really enjoying it anymore because of that fear kind of setting in. Um, and it just, yeah, that was, that kind of started one of the more challenging points of my career thus far, where it kind of went on for a couple years where I was kind of, uh, in the midst of deciding whether I should retire or whether I should keep snowboarding and yeah, just trying to find motivation again. And really that was stemming from fear of injury. Yeah, I think that was the biggest part of it. I mean, it's funny because if, if you had asked me back then what had caused the fear, I, w- I wouldn't have been able to tell you. Like, yeah. I would not have cited that experience specifically. But just since that point, just having reflected on kind of uh, the defining moments of my career, I would definitely say that that kind of s- stirred something up in me. And so that lasted, that fear kind of lasted a couple seasons. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I really didn't start to kind of work on overcoming that until this fall. I mean, I didn't really realize it was an issue. I kind of just thought like, well, maybe I'm just not enjoying snowboarding anymore. Maybe it's just not for me anymore. And, you know, there's other things that I could get excited about doing. So um, I didn't really try and fix anything because I didn't think anything was wrong. I just Mm. felt like you know, I just was getting burnt out and that's what it was. Interesting. And so what changed for you this fall? So this fall, I started to focus a lot more on kind of the the mental side of snowboarding. I mean, the physical stuff has never been a challenge for me because there's so many other benefits to working out besides the cross training benefits for snowboarding. Um, but this that hot bikini bod. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the beach bod for the summer. I know you. I know you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gotta look good for all the social media posts I do and all that stuff. So anyway, continue on. Um, so I started working uh, with a couple different sports psychologists and just kind of trying. They all have their own methods, so just trying to see if there was something that worked for me. Um, everyone kind of uses Olympic years as basically milestones for their career. So coming into this Olympic year, I was right around the brink of deciding, like, am I going to retire or am I going to go for this Olympics? And if I'm going to go for it, I'm not going to hold back. Like I'm going to do everything that I can to make the team and not have any doubts about it. And that's kind of what I was going through a little bit this summer was like, how bad do I want this? Like, is it worth me doing this or should I just step away because there's other stuff I'm looking forward to in life too. Mm -hmm. So how did you make that choice or, you know, you're asking yourself this. So what was the process of, I mean, you obviously have decided to commit. Um, so what kind of helped you switch that? I think that that was a big part of it was just deciding to commit. Like no more of this in between, like, I don't know if I'm a snowboard, do I want to do this or not? Just being like, I'm going to compete. That was a huge part of it was just deciding like this is going to happen. And then beyond that, like, obviously I got a lot of support from my coaches through, through the early season in particular, like trying to do as much as I could in training camps. Uh, We had a training camp in Switzerland um, that it was more productive than any training camp that I've had in quite a while. Just doing the tricks that scare me and doing them over and over and over again, as challenging as it was to do that all day, every day, that definitely was a huge confidence booster for me to come off of a camp and just feel really good about what I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, because it had been a while since I felt that way. Um, and so what, what helped you get there? Because you went through two seasons of kind of being fearful, not really necessarily knowing you were fearful, but kind of being in that wishy-washy place. How did you go from that to training camp every day, doing the things that scare you? Well, there's a sports psych with the U.S. team that I started working with. Actually, when I was in Switzerland, like one of the first few days, I actually ended up talking to her. And one of the first things that she had me do was write down all of the reasons that I love snowboarding and email that list to her. And I remember when she first told me, I was just thinking like, okay, what am I going to write? Like, they're very simple answers. Just like, I love the creativity and I love this and I love this. But I was so amazed at how many things came to mind when I was writing up that list. Just like the satisfaction of coming down off the hill after having a productive day or, you know, going and riding powder at a contest with your friends. Like, that list ended up being way longer than I thought and 
that is initially kind of what jump-started that feeling of like I do love snowboarding mm. and just having those conversations with sports psychs where I just told them everything that I was feeling and was really honest and just tried to kind of process all of those fears that I was dealing with and they just said like you know from what I'm hearing from you like you love snowboarding like I know you love snowboarding right now it's just buried kind of in that fear of being injured and you know it's a very real fear in our sport but I think kind of getting those tricks going again like pushing through that fear at that camp and getting back that satisfaction of pushing through that fear and accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish is really kind of what got me excited about snowboarding again and got me to kind of start pushing myself again. How do you push through the fear though knowing that you have fear, injury is possible. How do you know your limits? How do you know how to push? You need to push, but you can't push too far into that place where it's so fearful that you might injure yourself again. Like, how do you know that, that fine line? See, that's what's always difficult to find is, I mean, you could say that we never really know where that line is because people still get injured in this sport all the time. I mean, I got I got injured doing a trick that I had done a thousand times. Right. So for me, I think it's just, you know, it's that calculated risk of knowing like what I am capable of and also putting a lot of trust into my coaches. Um, that's been a huge part of it is uh, my relationship with my coaches has improved a ton over the past few months because they can see that I'm excited to snowboard again and you know, they obviously have always wanted to see me succeed, but to see that fire back in my riding has gotten them excited and just kind of helped our relationship improve that much more. And for me, I just put so much trust into them to tell me like when I'm ready to try a trick or, you know, any of their opinions about my snowboarding. And Mm -hmm. that helps me a ton. I mean, I, I'll tell them when I'm ready to do a trick, but I'm going to do it when they tell me that I'm ready. Yeah. That's, That's so awesome to have that. Um, that's awesome. So you really, it, it sounds like you found your love of snowboarding again, which sort of helped you make that choice. Like I'm in. And then from there you had the, the fire and the passion to address things that made you fearful. And every day you kept pushing through them. It got easier and easier. Is that sort of how things started for you? Yeah, that basically. Momentum. Yeah, it's it's really been a momentum thing, getting kind of back into that positive momentum. I think, you know, last season was difficult for me because it was kind of the same thing, just uh, dealing with a lot of fear that was kind of paralyzing and not really being able to find that motivation to push through it. So to be able to kind of take that fear, push through it and get that motivation back just from the feeling of knowing that I pushed through it and doing a trick that scared me. That's kind of what brought back that confidence that I was kind of missing over the past few years. And for me, just, yeah, learning new tricks, being able to kind of embrace that fear um, is something that more so drives me and gets me excited than something that kind of paralyzes me and makes me freeze up. And speaking of that, I heard that just the other day you learned a new trick. Yeah, so uh, last week we were training at Copper Mountain, Um, It was a U.S. team training camp, and I've been trying to learn a frontside 1080 for the past five or six years, I think, and it has always been a trick that's kind of been just out of reach. I've gotten really close but never landed it, Um, and I think that that change, like I said, in mental state was a huge part of it, just going out there and being like, I'm going to do this trick, and I ended up learning it while I was in copper, and that's just kind of been another addition to that positive momentum is just getting that confidence back. Like I'm going to set my mind to learning these tricks. And when I do, I can do it. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm really excited. So is that a trick you're hoping to kind of throw in depending on the conditions of the half pipes for the next couple events? Yeah, I would say, I mean, at this point, 1080s are kind of the standard that women have set. If you want to be on the podium, a 1080 is kind of mandatory at this point. So for me, I just kind of want to keep practicing it as much as I can and make it more of a routine trick. Um, It's helped make all of my other tricks easier thus far. So I think that the more that I do it, 
hopefully the easier it'll get and kind of open up new doorways to different runs and hopefully standing on top of the podium. Are there any tools or techniques that you've learned? You know, you've just kind of taken us through an awesome story of things that you've overcome, fear that you've overcome. Are there techniques like you're at a contest and you feel like that fear coming in? Are there techniques that you have to kind of help you shift to that place of, of positivity and momentum and like joy? Right. Uh, I would say, I mean, something that has really helped me is playing music. Mm-hmm. Um, I have certain types of music that I really like to listen to when I snowboard. So. Like what? Uh, well, Eminem is probably my favorite artist for nice. snowboarding. Nice. He's, he just puts a lot of passion into his music, which I really like, and his lyrics are really meaningful. Um, they tell a story, which I think is really cool. Um, so he's kind of my go-to, I'd say, for snowboarding. And actually, Taylor has also made an impression on me where I'm starting to listen to more and more classic rock, like Led Zeppelin and stuff like that, which nice. I'm also starting to enjoy. Most people might say it. That's a little bit better music than Eminem. Um. No, no. I'm all about <laughs> Eminem. Oh, good. That's good. what I used to listen to. I used to listen to Eminem, Jay-Z, yeah. uh, 50 Cent. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. Those... But the rock is good, too. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's good to have healthy mix, I'd say. I mean, that I'll listen to those songs, and then sometimes a Blink-182 song will come on, and that's Love great, Blink-182. too. What about country? Is that making it in the playlist these days? Country music is something I'll listen to if I'm up just cruising, snowboarding with my friends or driving in my car to a snowboard contest. Just kind of usually when I'm taking it a little bit more mellow, but it's not the kind of music that gets me pumped up. So I usually kind of stay away from the country when I'm trying to be productive. Fair enough. Fair enough. What is your definition of success? I would say... My definition of success is getting to do what you love for a living and being able to enjoy the entire process of it. Even the parts that aren't as glamorous, all of the little things that nobody sees, just enjoying every aspect of it. Enjoying the journey of the process of doing what you love. Precisely. Sounds good to me. <laughs> if you could break it down... How did you get to where you are now? Being an Olympian, being a professional snowboarder, um, you're potentially going into your second Olympics. Um, Like, what does it take? Can you break down, like, the things that you did to help you become an Olympian? I really think that it's just hard work and being able to enjoy the process, as Kelly Clark would put it, being able to focus on enjoying every aspect of uh, your process for being successful. Um, You know, for me, that's been the off snow work in the gym, visualization, doing all the things that aren't necessarily fun or glamorous to do, but that help uh, improve any of your attributes in snowboarding or whatever you're doing. So... For me, it's, yeah, just trying to find as much enjoyment as I can in doing all of those little things that don't necessarily get recognized. And, uh, yeah, just trying to do whatever possible to be successful. Uh, Just any little things that maybe your competitors aren't doing. um, Just kind of build on whatever you can. And, yeah, I mean, it's all those days when you don't really want to be doing the hard part. That's Those are the days that count the most, I think. And... You know, that's something that I learned from a lot of the older snowboard girls that I looked up to is stuff like going to the gym and doing all those little forms of preparation that most people don't really see from the outside. What about um, food? How important is like your diet? Like, is that something you really focus in on or... Is, I mean, for me in my career, there were parts, there were times when I, I didn't focus on it at all. And then, you know, at the end, <laughs> I was very, very into certain type of diet. Uh, where are you with that? Well, I was going to say, I remember in New Zealand a couple <laughs> years ago, you were eating chicken broth for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> Wait, 
I think it was just breakfast. <laughs> okay, right okay. maybe it was just breakfast. Maybe I was exaggerating. Lunch and dinner, we went out to eat pretty much every meal. So yeah, yeah. But you're right. I was definitely eating chicken soup for breakfast. Do you do that these days? I don't do that, but I have thought about that before. <laughs> I mean, that's like, yeah, I mean, traveling with you guys, as soon as I got on the pro team, that's really what taught me about being more aware of what I do eat because all the girls on the pro team are so aware of everything that they eat and just trying to eat really clean. And yeah, it's true that you get out what you put in. So just trying to put kind of cleaner, better fuel into my body I think has definitely become more important over the past few years. Are you a snacker? Do you snack as you're riding and training or do you kind of just wait? It's funny that's another thing that has actually changed since my mental state towards snowboarding has changed is that now when I'm in a session I don't snack on anything whereas before I think like even in New Zealand this past fall, kind of before I went through that change, I actually like used to look at snacking like, oh, I get to like take a break and have a snack. Like I get to take a break. Whereas now I'm just like, I'm not taking a break. Like you're in it. I'm in it. I'm going to make the most out of session. And a lot of times my stomach is kind of churning because I've got a little bit of nerves going because I am pushing myself that much harder to kind of try those scarier tricks. And yeah, when my stomach's like that, I don't want to eat anything. Yeah. Speaking of nerves, how do you how do you handle nerves? I mean, do you just kind of deal with them? They're just there. Do you see them as a positive thing, a negative thing? I think that it's a balance between positive and negative. I mean, it's it's a very fine line, I would say. When your nerves are healthy nerves, at least what I feel is like healthy nerves, they're the kind that get you excited to snowboard and I mean I'm I'm always nervous before contests and even before training days but if I wasn't nervous then I would be concerned that I wasn't motivated yeah that you didn't care enough yeah exactly I mean for me you know even going up today we had our first day of practice here at the Grand Prix and I'm just thinking to myself like I'm I'm a little bit nervous and normally on the first day I wouldn't get nervous because it's like, oh, I'm just going to take it mellow the first day and get used to the pipe. But what those nerves show me is that I'm ready to push it and I'm ready to, you know, scare myself because that's what you have to do in this sport to progress. Yeah, absolutely. I remember being at the 2006 Winter Olympics and feeling like I was going to explode with nerves And I called our sports psychologist and was like, I can't handle this anymore. Like the anticipation was killing me. And he told me something I'll never forget, much like you're just saying, that, you know, nerves are your body's way of preparing you for something that's really, really important to you. And it's up to you to kind of use that and channel that. It's not a negative thing. It's something that you can use to your advantage. So I agree. I think that's pretty awesome. Um... How much does it mean, will it mean, does it mean for you to make this Olympic team? I would say it's really important to me. I mean, this time around, just like I said, having set that intention this fall that I'm going to do whatever I can to make it, I think I've got, you know, I've got everything invested in this. And, you know, it's not necessarily just making the Olympic team. It's this entire season. Just seeing progression at every contest is really what I'm looking for, just wanting to ride better and better at every event, being able to land my runs and also, like I said, enjoying the process and having fun doing it. And if all of those things work out, then I'm hoping that'll also come with being on this Olympic team. Well, I hope to see that. Thank you. I hope, I hope to be there for sure. Last question. Is there advice that you have learned along the way that you would go back and tell younger you? I would say that I would tell younger me to be kinder to myself. Um, Definitely my harshest critic, and that's something actually that a lot of my sports psychs have also said to me is like, you know, that, that competitive mindset and those expectations are what has helped me to succeed, but you know, at times they've also handicapped me because it's kind of, it's kind of a balance between being able to kind of recognize the positives and, you know, take advantage of those and embrace those, but also having 
uh, that little bit of criticism to know that I can do better. And that's something that even now that I'm even being in a better mental state, I'm still kind of trying to balance out is, you know, going up on the hill and realizing that not every day is going to be perfect. Not every day is going to be progressive and being able to accept that and just use that as motivation for the next day to just try and do better. Wise words, Arielle Gold, wise words. Thank you. That was Arielle Gold, and the girl is hitting her stride right now in a big way. Right after our conversation, she came back to Aspen and got a silver medal at the X Games. It was literally the best run I've ever seen her do in her entire life, and it nearly overtook her good friend Chloe Kim in that first place position. So you better believe she's going to be a force to be reckoned with in women's half-pipe Olympic finals. Be sure to tune in and watch Monday night at 6 p.m. Mountain. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe. Also rate us. And I always love seeing your comments too. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.